Hey, did you hear? I've got a new book out. It's called How to Live a Good Life, Soulful Stories, Surprising Signs, and Practical Wisdom. I've been working on this baby for a number of years now. It's the distillation of about 50 years, 50 plus years now on the planet. Uh, the opportunity to sit down with hundreds of astonishing teachers and find patterns, you know, things that really, really move the needle and also sharing a single idea, a single model, a lens on life that um, you'll hear once, you'll remember forever, and it may guide the way that you move into the world from this moment forward and hopefully make a really big difference. We have a really cool pre-order initiative going on where we're working with a foundation to plant trees as well. So when you pre-order your book, you'll get some um, pretty hardcore, amazing extra bonuses and gifts. And at the same time, you will help us plant what we hope to become a good life for us. We are on a mission to plant 10,000 trees as part of bringing this uh, this book to life. And I would love your help. I'd be so grateful for it. So if you want to learn more about how to get your copy of the book or maybe become an ambassador, actually, we have an amazing ambassador experience as well. And also help us plant trees, plant that good life forest. Check out all the details at goodlifeproject.com slash book. Or you can just go ahead and click on the link in the show notes now. Thanks so much. I'm Jonathan Fields. On to our show. Life has problems, like get used to it, you know, just decide which ones are useful and important and which ones are just a distraction. So before we get into today's guest, just a quick, not a warning, but just letting you know that there is adult language in this conversation. Now, some of you may find that offensive, but actually what you'll find is that about halfway through the conversation, we actually get into a conversation about the use of that language, why it's there, what the purpose is, what some of the misconceptions are, why today's guest actually chose very deliberately to use words like the F word and stuff like that. And I think it's a conversation that actually is worth listening to. If again, though, you are completely offended and you don't want to be exposed to that, probably just listen until next week's episode. But my guest this week is Mark Manson. Mark has been writing a, I guess you could consider it a blog, although he tends to write these long and deep philosophical essays. But one thing that you'll notice about those essays is that every once in a while, they will be laden with vulgarity. And the interesting thing is he doesn't do it because he's lazy. He does it very tactically and strategically, and there's a, a specific reason for it. He made it onto my radar, I want to say a couple of years ago, when he came out with an essay. And the title of that essay was The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And that has now turned into a book, which is being published. And I got curious as he expanded on that philosophy. I got curious about a lot of what he was writing about, about his life. And again, I got curious about his writing voice, why he chooses to actually incorporate some really big, deep ideas and some really important conversations, conversations that I think would and should be had by a lot of people and couch them in a very strong voice, a voice that is clearly designed to fiercely attract some people and fiercely repel others. So we get deep into that conversation and into him as a writer and the choices that he's made. And so I'm really excited to share that and to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Where were you right before New York? You, I was in Brazil, actually. Were you living there? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Tell me what was that? What was that about? Um, so I, I actually first went down there in 2012. Right. Uh, and then my fiance is Brazilian, mm-hmm. so I stayed there for a little while, and then I left. She and I kept in touch, and I got pulled back, and and then I lived there on and off up until last year, and then uh, we got engaged last year, and it was like, okay, we need to start figuring out like green card process and all this stuff. So we went back there um, to do like a lot of wedding planning and just logistical stuff and then basically preparing for like the permanent move here. Right. This year, yeah. So as the world has been focusing on Brazil for the last two weeks, you guys are like, we want nothing to do. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's bittersweet, you know. Um, I think it's easier for me because I'm not Brazilian, so it's easier for me to just detach and just feel like, oh, it's Brazil being Brazil. Um, But... It's, it's, it's fun and, and, and kind of, you know, watching her on these emotional highs and lows with the Olympics and everything. It was the same with the world cup and, um, yeah, the country is, it's an interesting place. It's full, it's full of extremes, you know, extreme good and extreme bad at the same time. Yeah. It's funny because in in a weird way. A lot of people would probably say that about the United States these days, but probably for different reasons. Yeah. Have you found, cause you've traveled a lot. Yeah. Um, some 60 countries or something like that. Right. I'm curious, have you, and you're somebody who like, you know, from my sense of you really just kind of like observes your environment and how people interact with each other. Yeah. This has always been a curiosity of mine. So I'm going to pick your brain a little bit. Okay. Sure. It's been in a lot of cultures. <laughs> if there was a scale on how much like people emote 
<laughs> yeah. And you were going to rank the United States compared to, you know, like these 60 other countries. What do you think would, would happen? Would we be at the top, the bottom, the middle? I would say somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I would say, but I would say for Anglo slash Western European cultures, we're towards the top. Huh. People are a little bit more subdued in, you know, if you go to like Ireland or Scotland or Scandinavia. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, it's the Latino cultures, the African cultures, um, definitely like <laughs> they make us look like a bunch of boars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, as often I think that that's, a, that's an amazing thing to be able to just sort of like let whatever is in your heart pour yeah. out. And we, yeah. we just like stomp that down so much. Yeah, it's... It's I, I really fell in love with Latin culture for that reason. Huh. You know, and I grew up in a family that was pretty emotionally stifled. Right. Um there wasn't it wasn't accept, acceptable to express too much. And so when I discovered Latin culture, especially once I started to learn the languages a little bit, it was just this breath of fresh air. Yeah. Like it was just like, Oh my god, how have I been living without this my whole life? But it's interesting because then you spend more time in it and you start to realize that there's kind of like a there's a downside of that too. Like there's, I have a saying that I, that I, I always tell people, I say the best thing about a country or a culture is also the worst thing. Mm. And so if you take like Americans, like, a, like in the United States, we're extremely driven, extremely ambitious. We're very good at business. We have all these beliefs about like, you know, anybody can work and be successful and everybody deserves like free enterprise and everything. And in many ways, that's the best thing about our culture. It's the thing that we've contributed to the world but at the same time, it also creates all of our problems is that like we look at poor and homeless people and we're like, oh, well, that guy's lazy. He needs to go get a job. And and, and it, it creates a lot of like very kind of superficial aspects of the culture yeah. and, and everything's a sales job and people are very transactional in their relationships. And uh, the same applies with, I think, the emotional stuff. You know, what I love about Brazil and my friends and my fiance's family down there is just that like... <laughs> things are just so loving and open and warm and it's you know if somebody's happy they're just happy with you and if something bad happens they're just sad with you and it's a really beautiful thing but then the downside of that is that things don't really get done because people are just like well you know we've got a we've got this project coming up but uh you know, it's so beautiful outside. Like, why don't we just, let's take off work early and go to the beach, you know? And then they get to the beach and they're like, oh, well, let's have some caparinas. And then, you know, they have this great time. And then they, next thing you know, three weeks have gone by and that project's still not finished. Right. And, and like, there's a cool part of that, but it's, you know, when the whole society is operating on that way, nah. you know, things just break down constantly. Yeah, I mean, you could probably make a similar argument it's almost like the east coast west coast thing in the united yeah. states it's like you know you go to i mean because I, I know friends who are kind of hardcore entrepreneurs and business people on the east coast and then they go to the west coast especially southern california yeah and they're like okay so people we're hiring people but they're not actually showing up <laughs> and and i shouldn't make big sweeping generalizations i'm sorry sure. everybody i just sure. insulted everybody in Southern California. <laughs> yeah right so i'm completely sorry about that they're awesome industrious people in Southern <laughs> yeah. california um working but, so hard with right, their surfboards exactly. <laughs> but 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 it begs a bigger question though right because and and that is um okay so if you take it to the most extreme that you were saying if literally sort of that that you know, like uh, 
such as life, enjoy the moment, attitude makes it so that there's, you know, that people are just so much more there and present mm-hmm. and enjoying the moment. But at the same time, on almost like, a, you know, countrywide level, like industriousness and stuff doesn't happen. Is that a bad thing? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a society can function with a certain amount of that. And maybe even a certain amount of that inefficiency is healthy for it. Mm. I think the ideal middle is, is I, you know, I, I really wish I could take the best thing parts about Latin culture and the best parts about U.S. culture and just merge them into this like mythical, amazing <laughs> right. country. Because um, the problem in Latin America is, so yes, it's, it's nice to have that attitude. And, you know, when it comes to certain maybe industries or, or projects, like it's, it's fine to be like, you know what, if it's a few weeks late, it's late, it's not a big problem. But the problem in Latin America is like their infrastructure is failing, mm. the police are not reliable, the legal system's not reliable, the politicians aren't reliable, you know, and it, and once you start getting into that, it's it's you know, everything starts to kind of break yeah, down. Yeah, I bit. guess like you said, there's the light side and the dark side of everything. Like yeah. there's no you gotta kind of embrace it all until you figure out how to make that humanoid clone of like the best of <laughs> The best of, of all things. But but according to, I think, your philosophy, like yeah. that perfect person, that perfect existence would also be maybe the worst thing that could yeah. end up happening. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't think it can exist. I think it's, there's no, I mean, and I talk about this in, in my book, like there's, there's no such thing as a problem-free life. You know, it's, it basically, it's about picking your, life's about picking your problems. Which problems do you want? You know, and um, some problems are better for others, you know, objectively. Some problems are better for others based on their personality or their preferences, their values. Um, But I think really it's, you know, one of the central themes of the book is like, stop avoiding problems, choose the problems you want, choose the problems that are important, invigorate you, make you feel inspired, give your life meaning. Yeah, which is the exact opposite of what so many people think of which is to avoid all of that stuff yeah. i mean it's interesting you one of the things you talk about is suffering it's something that i'm deeply fascinated in yeah and it's funny you know, so re- i'm reading your book and you start telling this story a parable about a guy and i'm like three sentences i'm like i know who this is yeah. even though it takes like three <laughs> three pages to reveal it and it ends up being the buddha right but take me deeper into your understanding of suffering and maybe some of the what you feel are some of the misunderstandings around it and where the value really is sure Buddhism has been very influential on my life, and one of the things one of the things I like about Buddhism is I feel like it ha- it's much more realistic in terms of like, you know, like for lack of a better term, like life is shit. <laughs> you know, it's like everything kind of sucks, but that's okay. You know, like we're not here to like fix everything. We're here to just be with it and and get comfortable with it. And and so in the book, I talk about how it, it's you know, basically that's like the first tenet of Buddhism is that life is suffering. You know, everything you experience in your life will cause some form of suffering or another. And and the Buddha, you know, I, I don't get too deep in it, but, you know, in Buddhism, it, it has to do with attachment and attaching yourself to different ideas or feelings or emotions or whatever. I, I kind of take like a different uh, left turn or something when I talk about it and that I just say that, you know, suffering pain in general, it evolved for a reason. You know, it's not, pain is not this like horrible accident that was just kind of thrust upon humanity. Like we evolved over 
millions of years with a pain system in our body for a reason. And it's a feedback, it's a feedback mechanism that tells us that we're doing something that's not healthy or not good for us. And the argument I make in the book is that therefore we should not ignore it because if we get, if we become very adept at ignoring pain or uh, shutting pain out or distracting ourselves from pain, then we're not getting that necessary feedback that we need to maintain a healthy, stable life. Yeah. I think one of the the challenges that people have with that idea, and it's funny, you know, like I've gone fairly deep down the, the Buddhism rabbit hole too, and a lot of the philosophy really resonates with me as well. Yeah. And I'm fortunate to have, you know, have many friends who are, you know, have followed different paths and been able to have these like great conversations. The idea that we actually need pain to be there, that it has value. That's yeah. not something that we, like, you shouldn't spend your life trying to remove all occurrences of pain, but actually not necessarily invite it, but know that, like, it's okay if it's there. And, yeah. and it, it actually needs to be there. Um, and that there's, there's value. And that actually a life completely devoid of pain, which a lot of people think they want, is right. actually not a life that you want. Yeah. Because um, then it, it would be meaningless. There's nothing to strive for. There's nothing to struggle for. There's nothing to accomplish. There's nothing to nah. to move towards. There'd be no sense of purpose if if everything just felt good all the time. You know, it's like if you imagine like a heroin addict. You know, like to, and I think I even use that example in the book. Is like, yeah, there's there's a word we have for people who just chase pleasure all the time, and it's like hedonism. It's a heroin addict. It's a drug addict. You know, and it's and if you see those people, it's they've become controlled by this, just like chasing this feeling over and over again. Yeah. You know? So I, I guess the question is, if you accept the fact that a certain amount of suffering, a certain amount of pain is there, and there's value in that, you know, mm-hmm. like, what do you do with that? Um, where, do you, where do you go from there so that you can, because yeah, how do you extract the value from the pain, from the suffering? I think the first step is you need to choose, you need to decide what the pain means. Um and that's such a simple thing to say, but yeah. it, it's like <laughs> you can go so many right. different directions with that. Um, and actually, uh, probably the majority of the book is just about that. Like, what does your pain mean? Like, what are you deciding your pain means? How are you measuring success and failure for yourself? That's a hard process. That that requires a lot of self-questioning, requires either discovering or getting back to your personal values, like understanding, like, what you've decided is important for you. Mm. And that's an extremely personal and difficult thing for a lot of people to do, I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah. I think it's a process that most of us run from. Actually, yeah. I don't even think it's a process we run from. I think it's a process we've never been taught or encouraged to learn. Yes, I, I definitely agree with that. And so we've never learned how to like get good at it or like, you know, it's, we're all kind of figuring it out as we yeah. go. And I think the other difficulty is that it's a process that never completely ends. Mm. It's something that's always evolved. Like our, our, the meaning of our suffering and the meaning of our problems is it's always changing as our life goes on. And so we have to continually reevaluate, ask ourselves the same question year after year after year. Yeah, we don't like that. No, <laughs> no we want like final solutions. Right, like, like I, I want to take a pill and be right. happy. Can we just lock this down now? Yeah. It's like, okay, I checked the box. I know myself. We're good, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but but it's a, I, th- I think culturally we're so uncomfortable with the notion that it's a process that never ends. Yeah. But I, th- I think that's also uh, 
my sense is that that's something that's relatively unique to Western society. Yeah. What do you think? My observation is I think consumerism for all of its problems, it definitely has kind of a psychological side effect on us in that it kind of conditions us to just want immediate resolution to our problems or our desires, you know? So it's, I mean, if you pretty much every commercial advertisement ever made, it's like, you know, feel bad about your body, buy this, you know, feel bad about, are you hungry, buy this, you know? And it's, it's just this simple, like two-step, feel pain, buy something, problem solved mm. process. And I think that kind of just like gets inculcated into us and, and we get kind of fixated on it and we don't, and so, yeah, and I mean, you could probably talk about the education system as well, where everything is kind of like a definitive, like performance-based or result-based. But yeah, I, I find that process, you know, some people describe it as like a process-oriented mentality and a result-oriented mentality. Um, I think a lot of like just the structures in Western society is based on results, you know? Yeah. And there's goal, a, it's goal striving. Yeah. It's yeah. all clear, clear, clearly measured, but there are many aspects of our psychology that it's always a pro it's a process oriented. Like, give me, take, give me an example. Um, well, I mean, if you just take, so you just take happiness in general, right. you know, like there's no single thing in your life or my life that we will ever do that will, it's like, okay, happiness accomplished, you know, end up like, I'm done. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go retire. You know, it's um, the things that make us feel great today are often the same things that drive us crazy next week or next year. And just the way our kind of our brains work is, is that happiness requires action. It requires change. It requires like this process of, I guess, evolving, you know, it's moving the goalpost back repeatedly. Um, it's just the way our brain works. And, you know, these things in society, it's not built that way. And so you get a lot of situations where, you know, you have people who are worth $20 million who feel like they haven't made enough money yet. Nah. And you get people who own six BMWs who feel like they need to buy a seventh. And so there's, there's, there's a little bit of an in inconsistency there. Yeah. I, so I think so much, I so agree with that. I think, uh, and there's great research around that too. And you talk about yeah. it, I talk about it as well about, the more you actually maniacally pursue happiness, yeah, as a general, the less, you know, yeah. the more miserable you right. become <laughs> over time. It's counterintuitive, but actually, it kind of makes sense when you really deconstruct it. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to eighty percent less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. But you, you were kind of alluding to something else I want to go a little bit deeper into, which is the idea of sort of like rating your happiness in comparison to others around oh, you. Oh, yeah. You have this great sort of like set of contrasting stories, Dave Mustaine and Pete Best. Yeah. Can you sh- share that a little bit and, ha- and why you, you brought those two up in relation to each other? So, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge rock music fanatic nerd and everything. And, and I love these two stories. So Dave Mustaine, he was actually uh, the original guitarist of Metallica. And literally like the week before, a couple weeks before Metallica was going to record their very first album, the rest of the guys in the band just woke him up from a hangover and were like, hey, dude, you're out of the band and gave him a bus ticket to go home. And there was like no explanation. There was no like argument about it. It was just, he was done. He was out. And he was devastated by this. And he got very, he got very upset and angry and he decided when he got home that he was he resolved that he was going to start the biggest best most badass metal band the world had ever seen and he went out and found better musicians than the metallica guys and he and he started a band called megadeth which actually went on to sell like 30 million records toured the world played stadium crowds guy made millions of dollars it's really fascinating because about 10 years ago, there was a documentary made about Metallica and they interviewed Dave Mustaine and he actually broke down in the interview and was like, I still feel like a failure because I'm still, despite all of like the platinum records and everything that I've done, 
I'm still the guy who got kicked out of Metallica, you know? And, and what I love about that story too, is that by a lot of the conventional wisdom in our culture, Dave Mustaine did everything right. You know, like it's suffered adversity. And so he resolved that he was going to come back better and stronger than ever. And he was going to succeed no matter what. And he did it. He like accomplished everything he wanted to do. But what I say in the book is that the problem is, is that he wasn't measuring himself by being a successful musician anymore. Once he got kicked out of Metallica, he started measuring himself by, am I better than Metallica? Mm. And because of that, no matter how many millions of records he sold, he would never be better than them. Right. And Metallica, by the way, which has sold 180, 200 million. Yeah. I mean, right. they're like There's arguably, like right. <laughs> arguably one of the biggest bands right, ever <laughs> that have ever existed. And, uh, and then Pete Best. So there's a really odd kind of parallel if you go back to like the 1960s. So Pete Best was the original drummer of the Beatles. And eerily similar story. Beatles were about to record their first album about a month before the recording. The Beatles didn't even want to do it themselves. So John, Paul, and George went and told their manager, they're like, hey, kick Pete out of the band. And and the manager was like, why? Pete's great. Like, <laughs> actually apparently back then Pete was the only like responsible one who like showed up for rehearsal and like wasn't doing drugs so like the manager was like wait why do you guys want to get rid of Pete come on like he's a nice guy and like no get rid of Pete so a couple weeks before the recording started the manager kicked Pete out and they went and got they got Ringo and Pete went through pretty much the opposite of Dave Mustaine like he he tried to start other bands they failed miserably the Beatles were not very gracious with him. Apparently they like talked really badly about him in the media. They like made fun of him and said that he was a terrible musician and all this stuff. And he became incredibly depressed and almost suicidal. And again, if you jump ahead like 20, 30 years later, he, in an interview, he said, getting kicked out of the Beatles is one of the best things that ever happened to me. And his line of reasoning was it, it forced him out of kind of like this transient music life down another career path. He was still involved in the music industry, but he wasn't like a touring musician. And uh, he met his wife. He had kids. He had a family. Actually built a very successful life doing like music engineering, studio mu- studio production, things like that. And he said, yeah, actually like now I'm pretty glad I got kicked out because, you know, I would, he's like, I would never have privacy again. Like I would, my, my family life would be all screwed up. I wouldn't have met my wife. And so I think that's a beautiful contrast to Mustang because it shows that really the only thing that changed is Pete Best just changed how he was measuring himself. Well, I think he started out trying to be better than the Beatles and that quickly made him really depressed. And then once he realized that he couldn't do that, he needed to go find a new way to measure what success or meaning was in his life. And he found that. And he actually lived a very happy and healthy life. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because objectively, if you looked at those two stories side by side, right, and you asked them without having heard, like, those final things from either of them, and you're like, who's more successful? Yeah. You know, like, probably almost everyone would point to uh, Mustaine. Right. You know, like start, you know, like the second best, you know, like metal band ever and yeah. all this stuff because we define success. So kind of weirdly, um, yeah. it, it, and whereas in truth, you know, like the, he was torturing himself and he was miserable. Um, but that, that experience is not unique to him. I mean, there's yeah. really interesting research on sort of like comparison and how it, it destroys us. Yeah. 
you know how have you seen this this studies done where it kind of shows that ask people like, would you rather make I'm making up the numbers here but the the point is the same you can either make seventy five thousand dollars and know that you know all of your friends and colleagues are making a hundred or you can make fifty but be making twenty five thousand more than everybody right. else that you know and like they chose the lower number right as long as they knew they were making more than everybody else around yeah. them because we're so wired to try and derive satisfaction through comparison rather than just like something yeah. more internal. Yeah. We're weird that way. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like a curse. And I mean, I, I definitely fall into the school of thought that like, I don't think you can get rid of comparison. Like I think, like you said, we're wired for it. And for me, the question is, is what we, because that it's such a precarious thing, because if we start comparing ourselves with everybody around us, we're just going to end up on this like treadmill taking us to nowhere. For me, it's like, okay, if we have to compare ourselves to something, like, then we need to be very careful about what we decide to compare ourselves to. Like, how are we going to decide? Like, what is the standard that we're going to set for ourselves? Is it going to be selling more albums than Metallica or is it going to be? having happy healthy relationships in our life you know it's like we we get to decide what those comparisons are and we get to choose how we how we measure ourselves essentially yeah and i think that's one of the things that you tend to focus on also yeah. is what to care about and what not to care about yeah it's fundamental that's the fundamental part of your philosophy yeah. what to give a fuck about what exactly. not to give a fuck right about. it's like yeah. that's <laughs> at bottom line like that's what it's all about yeah tell me more a little bit more about that so you first came onto my radar i was probably uh a couple of years ago when I guess you wrote the essay that eventually turned into your book, okay. or at least like the beginning parts of your book, which is right. the same name as your book, yeah. which had one of the most brilliant top panels ever, by the way. <laughs> the you guys have to explosion. check this out. Yeah. It's like <laughs> the entire screen is just like, it's a, it's a photo of a, of a cat just kind of walking out with this giant explosion behind it. And, and the title of the post is like the, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And you're just like, what? What? It's this, it's this <laughs> like crazy pattern interrupt. You're like, there's no way that you can just tab past that without having to, to go further. Yeah. Um, the blend of that was brilliant. Mm. Um, but what, I mean, what inspired, clearly you had something to get off your chest and, and that persisted with you until you expanded into something much bigger. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I actually, I started writing this book about six months before that article. Mm. And I knew from the beginning that I wanted I wanted to write kind of a self-help book or a personal development book that, you know, I wanted to come at things from not trying to get gain more of everything, but trying to, you know, a self-help book based on having less, simplifying your life, like getting rid of all like the extraneous distractions and stuff. And I wanted to talk about a lot of these things about like how, you know, life is, life has problems, like get used to it, you know, just decide which ones are useful and important which ones are just a distraction and um i've been kind of hammering on these concepts for a while like I had, a, I had a good outline i had a bunch of like kind of rough drafts of chapters and stuff and um it was just one it was like a really crappy winter day and sometimes i, I just get in these very like irreverent moods where i just i don't know i just want to be like flimp it say like just absurd things on my blog and I, I probably have one or two posts a year that I just I just go nuts and um and I had always had this idea 
like I've got a sheet where I keep my, my article ideas and I just had an idea for a title and it was called the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And I just always thought that was like an awesome title. And so on this like gray afternoon, I was like, you know what? I'm going to write an article. I'm going to write an article and I'm going to say the word fuck as many times as I can. Like the, the whole goal of the article is to just say fuck, but not, I'm not just going to do that. Like, I'm not just going to be like crude and vulgar. Like, I want to also try to combine it with like really, really good life advice so that just people won't know what to do with it. Like they'll find this disgusting, vulgar article that like is just saying (laughs) these like really gross things, but then the information itself will actually be very like powerful and useful. Uh, And so I was like, okay, that sounds like fun. And so I just said, I said across, you know, I started writing it and I got to the end and I, I like, I remember reading over the draft and I'm like, this is absolutely ridiculous. Like this is, so I always send my articles to my assistant before I post them and just kind of get his feedback. And, and I sent it to him. I'm like, all right, man, this one's a little bit weird. I don't know if anybody, like, I don't even know if we, we should post this. And he's like, okay, I'll take a look. And he comes back like 15 minutes later. And he said, look, man, you can fire me. I'm posting this. <laughs> it's like, I don't care what you say. Like, we have to post this. There's nothing you can do to stop me from posting it. I was like, okay, okay. And he went and found the cat picture and everything. And um, and so, we posted it and just, it went nuts. I think it ended up with like, like, uh, like 7 million page views, 8 million page views, wow. something insane like that. Touched and, a nerve. Yeah. And that's when and it's and i had already been wrestling with a lot of these ideas and how to express them and it's like those early drafts of the book too they were very like kind of intellectual and philosophical and i would show sections to people and and they'd be like well this is interesting but it's really dry and boring and so when i hit this article i was like okay this is how it needs to be and if you think about it it makes sense like if you're basically going to write a self-help book that's all about like pain (laughs) just like get used to your pain. You're not that special, (laughs) you know, like it needs to be written in a very fun way that like can keep the reader like enjoying what they're reading. Cause a lot of the stuff, I I think a lot of the stuff, it's hard for people to hear that, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's, it's interesting to me because there's, so uh, I've been reading your stuff since, since I found it a couple of years ago and then, and then I read the book and I've had this conversation with a number of people over the years who are, who are writers and also just people who are readers and yeah. blog readers, stuff like that. And it's about dropping an F-bomb. It's about, you know, like just using language in your writing. Yeah. And like there's – and I'm, I'm sure at this point you have had this art, art, these arguments ad nauseum too right. about, you know, is it laziness? Is it just like what are you trying to do with it? You can make the exact same point without it. And it's interesting. As I'm reading your book, it, there's, I don't know if, if this was intentional, mm-hmm. but there's actually a, a progression in your book of like, if you analyze, if you did sort of like an F-bomb count per page from the first page to the end, yeah. at least it felt to me like the first quarter was loaded. Yeah. The next, and like, as you go through the book, it drops away and drops away and drops away. Almost like, I almost got the feeling like, okay, he's using them deliberately yeah. to just like shake me and to startle me and try and just keep rattling me long enough so that I keep reading enough of these ideas so that I start to ask deeper questions. And then it's almost like once, if I get to a point in 
you know, where I'm still reading, then it's almost like you feel there's almost like less of a need yeah. to keep doing those pattern interrupts. So now you drop into more straight philosophy and stories and stuff yeah. like that. Was that deliberate? <laughs> it wasn't. It was definitely deliberate in the first couple chapters. Yeah. I knew that the, fir- the first two chapters in particular are like the most kind of irreverent yeah. and just like very aggressive. In your face, yeah. Yeah, they're very <laughs> aggressive. Um, and I, I was very conscious of, of doing that um, for a lot of the reasons you said. And I've discovered this over the years with my blog too. Because like I've gotten complaints about my language for years and years and years and years. And so I, I've sat down with myself many times and said, you know, do I really need to use this language? Is, is it helping me? Is there a reason to keep doing it? And I eventually came to the conclusion that yes. And I think what you, you summarized it perfectly. It's a way to shake up people's attention, you know, because people who are reading self-development advice online, like at this point, we, we've all read like, 5,000 articles that say like more or less similar things. Mm. And so it's not like there's any, a lot of times it's not like people really need to be taught something new. The problem is it's just like they know what to do. They're just not doing it. And I think a big part of that is just people get too comfortable. They're just, they're stuck in their comfort zone. They like their day to day. And so it's fun to like kind of read this stuff, but they don't actually ever let themselves experience the discomfort of having to consider it. And so I try to kind of use the vulgarity as like a hammer to like chip away at that comfort. Mm. You know, it's like if I can just throw in a joke that makes you really uncomfortable reading it and then hit you with like a difficult personal question immediately after, like I, I feel like it makes it easier for a lot of people to like to go to that place because they're already uncomfortable from the joke or whatever. That was definitely at play in the book. And then the other thing about the book too, and and I had conversations with my editor about this, is that a lot of the deeper philosophical stuff is towards the back. Right. And my editor told me, there was some rearranging that went on, and my editor told me, he said, look, like this stuff is great, but he said, you've got to earn it. Like you can't just like throw out questions about people thinking about their own death, like in the middle of chapter three, he's like, you got to build up to this, man. Like you can't just, (laughs) you know, like just open up the whole Pandora's box to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's really interesting because for you, it's not laziness because you definitely have, you have an ability with words and you've been writing for a number of years now, you know, it's very tactical. Yeah. But I think if you haven't read enough of you, you probably don't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think eventually you're like, oh, he's using it for very specific reasons in a specific way in a specific place. Yeah. You know, but if you just kind of land on something, like, um, you will immediately be, you know, either fiercely repelled or fiercely drawn yeah. in. Like, there's no middle yeah. reaction. Yeah. To uh to some of these things. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire 
inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. But it's interesting to hear you say that, yeah, it actually is tactical. It's specific. It kind of reminds me. Have you seen the um, the documentary that's floating around now, the, the Tony Robbins documentary? I have not yet. I yeah. want to see it. So it's like, you know, it's basically, it just, it's a documentary that kind of follows this, you know, his yeah. six or seven day thing. And he drops F-bombs left and right. You yeah. Know? And it's for the exact same. And people have said to me, at the end, I've had this conversation, they're like, oh my God, I never knew he was so vulgar. I'm so offended. <laughs> and I'm like, if you actually zoom the lens out and look at what he's doing, it's in entirely tactical as sort of like trying to interrupt behavior and you can yeah. you can argue about wh- whether and when th- that's appropriate in in the context of a particular conversation or intervention or person right but you actually like it's not that he just has you know, like a potty mouth it's that he's doing it in a very deliberate strategic way yeah. and i get the same sensibility with you yeah i i actually wrote an article couple years ago called why i have a potty mouth nah. and uh and it was just because i i i got so many complaints from so many people that i finally i was like i need to like put, just lay it out there yeah, yeah i just put my sword and the line put the line in the stand or whatever and um it's interesting i did some you know when all these issues were coming up i did some research about like where vulgarity comes from because it's very interesting that you know tying it back in the cultures like Every culture, every language has profanity. And so it's it It's not something that's just unique to our history or our culture or the English language. Like It's a natural thing that's ingrained into, into us, and it, and it exists everywhere. And so then the next question becomes like, okay, why do we have that? 
And um, the theory goes is that basically societies kind of rope off a group of words and it changes as the generations go by, you know, things that, you know, the word fuck was like not considered vulgar at all. And then there was a really funny one. I think it was like, uh, I think it was like the word impale or something like that was like extremely vulgar in like the 17th century. Mm -hmm. And, And it was like, it was the equivalent of like, fuck that was extremely crude, you know, back then. And now we, it's just like another random word, but Anyway, like the, the we always kind of like rope off these these groups of words and just all agree that like okay those were bad words and the reason is is that it it creates social cohesion because it's like and it allows us to like that shock value that happens when something is said like it provides value in communication it provides value within the culture like it it is a signifier of like this is something that is of high intensity or or importance or requires extra attention and so yeah there's like <laughs> to, to me it's just it, it makes sense and i understand that it's it's going to alienate a large group of people but you know for my style and for how i like to communicate and like it, it just i like to to leverage it not to go off on too much of a tangent but like i think one of my big it's, this show is basically about tangents. Yeah, this is, the whole show is just one big tangent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's all good. Um, you know, one of my big inspirations growing up, I I was huge like George Carlin fan. Yeah. And there was another guy named Bill Hicks that I loved too. Right. And and what I loved about them is that they were crude and hilarious, but like Carlin especially, like he would make like really profound yeah, deep social commentary. Yeah, yeah like yeah. really interesting critiques and and you would just be laughing so hard while he did it. And I've just always really admired that. And I think I I took a lot of inspiration from that. Yeah. Well, so Carlin's, it was a, like his famous like Seven Dirty Words, yep. right? Yeah. I mean, that's like the bit that I think kind of like, you know, like everyone just kind of got to know him by, at least for me, me actually, that's where I was like, whoa. And, yeah. And I'm telling all my friends, you know, and then I remember at some point, like years later, I, I literally remember like the first time I heard one of his seven dirty words on TV. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, culture has changed. Yeah. Hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it, so it is interesting because like what you were saying before, it's like, you know, the things that are vulgar and disgusting and unaccepted, it's just that all shifts over time. I have a friend of mine who's deep into Shakespeare, done a lot of research around this and deeply involved in sort of like the Shakespearean societies and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And saying, actually, if you look at the language that was used, a lot of the language that we don't really understand or doesn't do anything to us now actually were yeah you know, the functional equivalents of all these you know, like like swear vulgar. words yeah, yeah. that's um, interesting back in his time and it was just part of you know like what was woven into the stories and that's the fascinating yeah um, huh. so but it is really interesting because the single biggest argument that's every once in a long while I drop stuff into my writing but as a general rule I don't but what's interesting is it's deliberate with me not to because. I write way more cleanly than I speak. Yeah. If I'm hanging out with my friends, I'm a New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have, we have, you know, I have a number of friends that will, you know, like basically, you know, like they use four letter words as commas and sentences, right. <laughs> you know, and at certain times, if I'm riled up, I will too. Yeah. And so I have to make a very deliberate, and there are times where I just want to let loose, and there every once in a while I do. And I get a lot of either, wow, that was amazing, or, you know, like, I'm never reading a thing that you yeah. write again. That it's was polarizing. massively disrespectful. And so you have to be willing 
yeah. to be that lightning rod, you know, yeah. that both attracts and repels in a really strong way. Yeah. Um, and sort of like stand in that and say, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, I'm not ready to go there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. there yet, but it's amazing to me. Uh, so I'm always fascinated by people who are, what's, what's underneath it. And also like really getting clear of the fact that this is, this is not laziness with language. Yeah. This is that, deliberate strategic use. And that, that bugs me. Like yeah. I, I understand, you know, so I get a lot of emails from people who are like, I wish I could show this article to my kids yeah. or I'm a high school teacher. I would love to assign this to my students, but I can't because of right. this and that, that I get that. And I, and I, that's what I feel like I'm missing out on or, or what I'm giving up by using this. But yeah, what drives me crazy is when you get kind of these like cranky grandmothers who are like, you know, if you can't say it without the F word, then you're too stupid to say it at all or, you know, whatever. And, and it's, yeah, it's it's just a lack of understanding that like <laughs> that that profanity like words have meaning like they exist for a reason yeah. and their meaning exists for a reason and um, yeah I, but and, at at the same time I think there are also plenty of examples of people who use words because they're and who aren't using them tactically or strategically yeah. it's not because it's the right word to like describe an emotion or something that's being yeah. felt like and there's no other word to describe it it's that they're just like there it there is a certain amount of laziness or just you know they're yeah not a lack of craft yeah um and they just so, want attention so people want to lump everybody into the same basket yeah. you know so i i can understand the arguments on both sides, but it's something that I'm sort of like constantly <laughs> dancing with and exploring. But there are also times where I've written, you know, I told a story once about this moment that I experienced in an elevator where you know, like one person who was in deep pain and clearly very ill turned to her parent after getting really bad news and just whispered, you know, like in, in her mom's you know, like ear, she's like, fuck. There, it, there's no way to tell that story using any other word. A, right. it was it was what was actually said. Right, right. But B, there's no other word that expresses right. that emotion. Yeah. Like that in that window of time. There is just, you know, like, oh oh damn or it's it <laughs> shucks. Does, right. It's not it's not gonna that's yeah. not what was being felt. And that's the biggest thing for me is if what you're feeling, like bone deep in that moment, is that, then to use another word because you you don't want to offend is doing a disservice. Yeah. You know, because you're not conveying the truth of the story that you're trying to tell or the message or, yeah. or a real life scenario that unfolded and you diminish the power of it at the same time. So it's a really interesting line that I'm always sort of like exploring yeah. as a writer. There, there's another curiosity around because you consider yourself, I mean, you don't just write as like a side thing. You're a writer. Right. Right. And you, you've written that, you know, a number of years back, you kind of realize that after trying a zillion different things, one of the things that you seem to be decent at and you really decide to focus on is you can write. And mm -hmm. so writing is something that you, I'm assuming you kind of hold dear, that you really yeah. value your, yeah. your, and you know, you as a writer, do you get concerned ever that you, you don't know whether people are responding to the integrity of the message versus the provocation of the package that it's wrapped in as a writer to try and figure out like, am I like, are my ideas really landing? Mm -hmm. I think the reactions for me, they kind of land on two different levels. So there, there is that kind of more superficial level of like, Oh cool. This article got, a lot of Facebook likes or, you know, or I got a lot of traffic from this one, you know, and 
and that's pleasing. Like it's obviously it's it always feels good to see things read and passed around. But you know, for me, it's like the baseline or or what I really kind of look at to determine. I guess whether, you know, my my measuring stick for whether I did a good job really comes from like the reader reaction themselves, like the emails I get. There's kind of a core readership that follows me very vocally. Um, And so I, I look at what they're saying, what their responses are. A lot of people send me stories of like how certain things affected them. So I get kind of a sense like which articles are really hitting a nerve with people and which ones are not. And the interesting thing is, is that you know, those two layers, sometimes they happen together. So like with this, with this, the article that spawned this book, it happened, they both happened together with that one. So I got a flood of people coming in, probably just because they saw the cat picture in the word fuck in the title. And they're like, okay, got to click on this. But I also got a, a flood of people who are like, wow, like I never thought about this before. Like, this is amazing. But there are other articles where I get that flood of attention, but I don't get that flood of like people going, Oh wow, this is like, this really affected me on a deep level. So, so those articles I can kind of look at and be like, all right, that was a little bit more sizzle than steak. Yeah. You know? and, and and you would rather have the, the, the emails that say this mattered. Yeah. If I had to only have one. Yeah. yeah uh, I would rather have that. Um, I go for both, but, um, you know, I, I try to cast a very wide net. I guess I go for breadth and depth at the yeah. same time. But sometimes you only get one. And um, and if I had to choose one, I would just choose depth. Yeah. Even yeah. though it would also very likely narrow your audience a lot. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Well, this is kind of getting more into the nitty-gritty of writing. But, like, I feel like it's much easier to take something that's deep and kind of package it in a way that's exciting and catches attention, you know, cause that, that's almost like quasi marketing at that point, you know, it's like, and I have tons of blog ideas that like, it's a really nerdy idea, you right. know, like it's super intellectual and dorky and, and I spend time kind of like, all right, how, like what language can I put around this that like, <laughs> you know, the average person on the street will like read it and understand it and be interested in it. So there's that aspect of it. I think doing that is easier than creating depth where there isn't any. Yeah. What was interesting, though, is that like the story you told about where this original essay and then eventually the book came from was, and it's funny because I do this too, is you just had a title yeah. that you fell in love with. And I, did, like, I have a running list of titles. I'm like, someday I'm going to figure out what to write underneath that title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like I'm, and I'm not going to waste it because it's so good. So yep. like it may take years, yep. but someday I'll figure out like something worthy of that title to write. Yep. And so it, in a way you could call that like a marketing driven essay, but in the truth, it's not because you just know that there's something about the title that is just, that conveys yeah. so much. Like it's the right words. It just like, you know, it's, it's beautifully, it just says so much. Well, with this one, so yeah, this one sat around, this title sat around for over a year. Yeah. And the feeling I get with the with that situation is, is I feel like, I remember like, I th- I was like, this is such a good title. I need to think of something that deserves it. Yeah. You know, like I need, I can't write this article until I find the ideas that are 
good enough to match how good it is. Yeah, it, it also reminds me of like the 100 URLs that I have reserved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, like some – I actually – I had a business that where um, – my, my last actually brick and mortar company that I owned where I actually reserved the URL a couple of years before and I wasn't sure why I was just like this is good and yeah. someday I'm going to do something with it and I actually ended up building an entire company around it oh wow so yeah but I think sometimes we get those hits of things where like we're not sure what it's but like we kind of we know something has to happen around yeah. it we're hanging out literally on the verge of this book coming out by the time this airs actually it'll be it'll be like right about out why a book <laughs> You know, because you've got a tremendous audience. Mm -hmm. You know, you have total freedom to write what you want to write. Your sure. people are responding to you. You're able to support yourself. So why why a book? <sighs> I think, I mean, first and foremost, like I love books. Like I genuinely, you know, you were you were asking me before we started recording about podcasts, and yeah. and like I said, like I I dabble in podcasts. I, I download a few episodes of this guy here, a few of there, you know, and like. Uh, like you, I, I've probably listened to five or six of your interviews. I couldn't even, they were probably spaced so far apart. Right. I wouldn't even know, you know, it's just like, I see something interesting. I'm like, okay, I'll listen to that. But like books is like, I, books are the thing that I fall in love with. And so for me, there's just kind of a natural urge to pursue that, you know, because that's just kind of where my own passion lies. The other explanation is I just, I think I'm a much better writer than I am speaker or you know uh video personality uh, it's something that i'm way more comfortable with that i'm more i'm more confident in i imagine i could you know if i put put the time in and built up my chops you know doing audio or video or something like i, I could probably get good at it but it's like i've already put in my chops writing yeah know, so how has the process of writing books sort of surprised you like what was the coming into it what was like one big expectation that you had where you're like oh that wasn't what I thought it was. <laughs> there was a really big realization for me about halfway through. Um, and that was when I realized that the, the amount of time I put in per day writing was not, the input and output weren't like matched. So what that means is, when I started writing this book, it was like, all right, I'm just going to like write like a madman. And I would block off entire days and I would write for like eight or 10 hours. And I would, you know, I'd write like 4,000 words and I'm like, oh, come on, let's get to 5,000. And I would just like push myself the power through, get mm. the 5,000 or whatever. And I was just like, I was like treating myself like a, like a workhorse. And it took me months to figure out because in the early stages of this book, like it was just it was kind of a disaster. Like it was just disorganized and all over the place. And, and I kept having to like delete stuff and rewrite it and delete stuff and rewrite it. And I finally took some time off and I, I kind of realized that I don't remember where it came from. I think I was talking to, to a friend who's also a writer, but it occurred to me that if like the first few hours I write, I generally, you know, generally like the best stuff I produce, it comes in the first two to three hours that I'm writing. Mm. After that, you know, hour, say, like, four through eight, it's really hit and miss. And what occurred to me is that if I'm forcing myself to output, like, three or four hours a day of crappy writing, I'm actually, like, creating more work for myself. Mm -hmm. Because all that crappy writing, you got to go back through, you got to edit it, revise it, cut it, rewrite it, 
shift it around, redo the outline. And I realized, I was like, you know, maybe I should just go as long as I feel like I'm doing, I'm writing really well. And like it's coming easily and fluidly and then just stop and just see how that goes. And mm. what I discovered is that actually like writing maybe like three hours a day and then getting to that point where my brain's a little bit fried and, and I start like bumping into the wall. If I stop there, I'm actually way more productive than if I like force myself to power through like eight hours a day. That was just, that blew my mind on so many levels it, and it didn't even, it felt like it was unfair. Like, you know, it's like, it feels like, like, man, I had so much discipline. I was working so hard, you know? And it's like, now it's like, I wake up, I write until it's time to have lunch and then I'm done for the day. And it's like, that's more efficient. This is more productive. Like this isn't even fair. <laughs> right. It's so kind of, it's like you would, you wouldn't, I'm the same way. I think we're all the same way. Actually, yeah. you know, like all the research shows that we don't actually have all that much bandwidth available for yeah. really high level creative work. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like when you're cooked, you're cooked and, yeah. and we keep pushing through because we're trained to work an eight or a 10 or a 12 hour yeah. day. That's just the expectation. But the fact is like, you know, the other 70% is just largely just gobbledygook. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That, and like you were saying, it's actually worse than, than nothing because then you have to go back and figure out, yeah. like parse it to find out if there are any nuggets and that takes additional work on yeah. top of it. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say that. It's uh, my I'm, I'm the same way. Like I wake up first thing and I, I try and do my sort of fierce creative stuff, my writing, like as early as I can because yep. I know I'm cooked by generally too, like for deep creative stuff by yeah. lunchtime I'm pretty much done yeah like it's over <laughs> yeah and it's it, it was a big lesson to learn that creative energy and just mental energy they're not the same thing you know it's it, it's if you if I want to work on my website I could do that all day all night and still be productive but yeah like writing a book writing an article three hours I'm probably almost done yeah that, that sounds about right for me too yeah. um i want to start to come full circle one it's really it's so interesting for me to have spent time reading somebody and then just hang out with you yeah because one of my curiosities is always is the voice that i because you know when you read an author and when you start to actually read enough of them you start to you start to create a persona in your head yeah of who they are and what they're about so um and then when i get to sit down with somebody i'm always really curious i'm like okay it's hanging out in person just having a regular conversation is he the person that i felt on the page yeah and it's interesting there's a certain there is a certain yes to that but there's also a certain no to me so it's interesting to just hang out with you there's a certain sort of like abrasive machismo on the page that comes out <laughs> when you write and just hang out here. It's much more like you're kind of like a regular guy who wants to do yeah. good in the world. And he's like deeply philosophical and always exploring what it means to like, you know, like give to and get from life. And you've also, you happen to have figured out a writing voice that yeah. really kind of allows you to build an audience and yeah. make a difference. And you, so you've, you kind of like step into that. Is that accurate or is that just like, it's, uh, it's funny. I, all the time I meet readers and all the time they're like, wow, you're so much nicer in person than I thought you would be. And like, I stand, it gets really awkward because I'm like, is this a compliment? I don't know if right, this is a compliment. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know. There's probably some sort of like unconscious thing going on there because I, I, I've heard things similar to that before. And it's interesting you say like the machismo thing, like, all I know is that I write, like, when I sit down to write, 
my only goal is to write something that I want to read, mm. you know? And the voice that comes out for me, like once I write something that I've decided is good, like the voice that comes out is like, all right, that's awesome. Like yeah. I, w- I want to read that, you know? So, but that makes sense. I'm, I'm a pretty like laid back dude. And I definitely, there's an intensity in a lot of my work, like this, like kind of like aggressiveness. Yeah. But I think it probably also speaks to, you know, there are, and it's probably not just you, it's probably all of us, right? You know, like there, we're not just one person with one. Right. You know, we have, we have light sides, we have shadow sides and there yep. we have, we each have different elements of ourselves that we bring to, that we show the world in different ways and yep. different, you know, like channels and stuff like that. So it's kind of fun to sort of like see like <laughs> these two things. And, then, and I've, I've actually had an, enough conversations with writers too, where I know their work where it's just, it's this fascination of mine now to kind of see. Like, is it common? Like, really common yeah. from what I've seen. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's been really interesting to kind of see over the years huh. that, um, yeah, there are a couple of people that come to mind, um, where like who write with this, you know, like a voice, which is, yeah, you would never guess that it's sort of like the same person just kind of hanging out, um, <laughs> funny. Know, like, across the table. But, uh, so it's always really kind of fascinating to That's see cool. that. Yeah, and I, I come out of like a marketing background with uh, where I know some of like the top copywriters too, and they will literally like step into a persona oh, wow. in order to write this like deep, aggressive, you know, so like powerfully persuasive copy. They'll literally change clothes, yeah, um, you know, wow. and not shave for three days, and, um, and they'll have their hat that they put on, and they like drop into a persona and just write. And I sense that maybe not as deliberately, but a lot of writers do that to a lesser extent to kind of like, like they step into that persona, um, which is like, okay, now like this is me as a writer. And now I'm kind of stepping back into this is just me kind of hanging out in life because maybe it, maybe it emboldens you to go somewhere that you might not do if you're, if don't feel like you're that person at that moment in time. That's interesting. I can see that with myself when yeah. I sit down to write. Cause there is like, and it's not like I'm, yeah, it's it's I'm accessing a part of my personality definitely more so than the others. And I think and that's where like a lot of that aggressiveness comes from. And I think a lot of that is just I guess over the years I've been shown by people, my readers that that's that's effective, mm. you know, and so it, it kind of like subconsciously encourages me to keep stepping into that part of my personality when I'm writing. That's interesting though. Yeah, I should. I feel like I should like lay down on this couch, and <laughs> start telling you about my childhood. Like for, for you guys listening, we're we're actually we're like between studios. So we're hanging out in my living room right now on these really cushy couches. And like the fact that your eyes are still open right now because the air conditioning's off, it's getting a little bit warm. So, so let's take a full circle. So okay. maybe this is a good life project. So if I offer that term out to you, a mm-hmm. guy who spends a lot of time thinking about these questions, what does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to live a good life? Living a good life means you have good problems. You have problems that invigorate you, excite you, and bring meaning into your life. That's what I would say. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real unscripted conversations and ideas that matter and if you enjoy that too and if you enjoy what we're up to i'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds 
and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. And you can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. Thank you.